Well, today is Father's Day, and uh, there are a few times throughout the year when I, I just want to begin with a, a brief thought about Father's Day before we uh, pray and continue with worship this morning. There are a few times throughout the year when our worship services fall on or around the time of a holiday. I'm thinking of such occasions as today, being Father's Day, or Mother's Day, or the Fourth of July, or Memorial Day. And when that happens, quite often churches will commemorate that holiday in a special way. They'll bring a message and music and special elements to the service to celebrate the meaning and significance of that day. And I've seen, I've seen this done well, and I think I've also seen it done poorly. Or if I can use stronger language, I've seen it done in ways that I think, frankly, rob God of his glory. By focusing on the excellence or worth of human beings and human actions rather than on the God we have gathered here to worship this morning. In 1 Peter 2.9, it tells us that we were called into a special relationship with God that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that's why we gather here on Sunday mornings to celebrate how excellent our Heavenly Father is. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is given a glimpse into heaven and he says there, to, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And in Revelations, we see a glimpse of heaven with the angels gathered around the throne, proclaiming God's worthiness and crying, holy, holy, holy. And I think that we should seek to emulate the God-focused worship of heaven here at State Road Advent Christian Church at all times and in every worship service. So that leaves a question, how should we approach an occasion like Father's Day in a worship service like this? How can we talk about our earthly fathers, our human fathers, worshipfully in a way that would be glorifying to God and that would be satisfying to our souls? And I think the Bible provides us with some help in this matter, in the way that it talks about fatherhood. For example, in the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells a story about a human father. But that human example is meant by Jesus to point us to some excellent truths about our Heavenly Father, who receives back his wayward children with joy and forgiveness when they turn to him in repentance. In Matthew 7, another example, Jesus is teaching about prayer, and once again, he uses human fathers to point us to a truth about our Heavenly Father. He said, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent if you then who are evil remind your father today that he is evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him likewise the author of hebrews wrote about about our earthly fathers god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness." So what I want us to see with these three examples is this. In every instance, we see that God, in his word, 
celebrates the best aspects of human fatherhood in order to stir within us a heart of celebration toward him. So fatherhood at its best points us to God. And so I think we would be making a mistake if we turned any portion of this service primarily into a celebration of our human fathers. Because if we did that, we would be using this time to proclaim the excellencies of someone other than God. However, this is a fitting time, just as we did on Mother's Day, to recognize Christian fatherhood as an important ministry and calling, to affirm our human fathers and all of their imperfections, that they are good and needed, and we have much to celebrate in them. That they would, uh, so I want us to pray this morning that uh, we want to recognize Christian fatherhood as an important ministry and calling and pray for the fathers in our midst that they would be servant leaders in their homes. That they would fulfill their unique and special calling in a way that reminds their families how excellent God is. To father in a way that points to the humble selflessness of God, his unfailing love, his patience, grace, and forgiveness the abundant way that he provides, protects, and disciplines his children, the way God uses his awesome strength to be gentle. My prayer is that God would work a miracle in me and my fellow dads here at State Road, that we would sing worship songs loudly and with genuine emotion. Not in the service, mind you. (laughs) That we would be active in making Jesus the center of our homes, that our children and our, fa- our loved ones, our family members, would see in us a genuine outward truth of an inner reality that we love Jesus. And we want to lead our families in a way that point them to him. What a critically important calling fatherhood is. And I'm so grateful that not only do my kids at State Road have me as their dad, I'm grateful to have them as my kids and for the opportunity to be their dad, but I'm grateful for so many other dads who people this church. Uh, State Road is really blessed with some remarkable dads. And I'm glad for your example to my children too. I think Father's Day is an opportunity for us as God's people to look at the community that we belong to and be grateful for this sterling example that our children have with so many wonderful dads here in the midst. So let's encourage our dads now by, in that calling by lifting them up in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for my dad. And uh, I thank you, Lord, for the calling you've laid on my life as a dad. I'm thankful for all the fathers that I know here at State Road. And Father, all of us fathers would first and foremost proclaim that we are imperfect, wildly so. We've blown it in private, in front of our families. There are times, Lord, when we have disappointed you and disappointed them. We know all that to be true. But, Father, even in that, we proclaim our humble dependence on a Savior. Father, no father is so great that they can replace you. But the greatest fathers are the ones who point in our humble weakness and our, our, our great need for a Savior, our kids, to you. Father, I pray for the fathers here at State Road, and Father, I pray that in their strength they would be gentle. Father, I pray that they would be lovers of you, that they would actively seek to provide leadership to their homes, to their families. Father, I pray, Lord, you would encourage them in the midst of it, 
And Father, I just pray, Lord, that uh, today their family members would encourage them and thank them for the role that they play in, uh, in leading their families for you. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would raise up here at State Road fathers who are, are active, who are not passive, and who uh, take their role seriously to provide leadership in the home as a servant leader. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them and gift them and equip them for that calling. And uh, Father, I just thank you for dads. I thank you for the important job you've given them. And I pray, Lord, you would help them in the doing of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to be continuing this morning through our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to skip right over the story of when Jesus turned the water into wine, not because that's a significant or important passage of Scripture, but because just not that long ago we studied that Scripture. Remember, we went through the eight miraculous signs of the book of John. And so uh, if I'm sure all of you remember my sermon on that occasion word for word. We don't need to revisit it, right? <laughs> you guys have listened to it, re-listened to it, memorized it. I'm sure that's standard practice for all of us. But uh, I thought it was still a little bit too soon to visit the exact same portion of Scripture. So we're going to jump over that, and we're going to dive into John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. I'm going to go ahead and read them. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Beginning at verse 13, it says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Uh, let me pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, as we unpack these verses, that you would help me by the Holy Spirit to do it justice. God, help me to get out of this for us together this morning what you would have us to dwell upon and think about and apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine the scene with me. <laughs> Loose oxen and sheep run pell-mell, bolting wild-eyed through overturned booths. People are yelling, cattle bawling, there's the bleeding of sheep, Tables are overturned. Money has been dumped and scattered. There's a jangled clanking as the coins pour onto the pavement and roll away. And there in the middle of it all is the incredible scene of Jesus wielding a whip of cords, driving violently by threat of force the money changers and the merchants and their animals from the temple. There is a general air of anger 
confusion, consternation. It's loud. It's riotous. I imagine that his disciples probably had a look on their faces like they didn't know whether to help or leave before the cops showed up. Jesus isn't just overturning tables. He's overturning precedent, a settled, accepted, largely unexamined way of doing things at the temple. And like all kinds of gadflies and people who show up in the public space and upset a settled way of doing things, it's confusing and very uncomfortable, I think, for everybody there. You see, because so many coins in the first century Roman world were stamped with the images of pagan deities or human kings who believed themselves to some extent to be divine, such profane, blasphemous imagery could not be allowed to enter the temple treasury. So, for the convenience of worshipers who came especially from foreign countries and who wanted to make an offering at the temple or who wanted to buy an animal for sacrifice, Money changers had set up booths in the outer court of the temple, which if you're a a Bible buff is known as the court of the Gentiles. And they did this for the purpose of exchanging unclean foreign money for some that could be received into the treasury. But of course, these money changers were not motivated by altruism or religious devotion or just wanting to make things easier for the worshipers of God. They made money on the deal. In fact, this was very lucrative. And for the privilege of operating in the outer court in this way, the religious leaders who oversaw the administration of the temple got their cut. Likewise, for worshipers who came from far away, it was a very impractical thing to bring their own temple, their own animal from home to the temple to be sacrificed. And even if they had brought their own animal, they would have had to submit the animal to the priests for inspection. And if the priests, for any reason, found fault with the animal, it would not be fitting for sacrifice, so then they would have to go and acquire another animal anyway that was already pre-approved for that use, and then use that. And very often we know from the history that the priests would even do this horribly wicked thing where they would find fault with the animals simply so the people would have to buy their own animals. This kind of abuse was happening. Thus, merchants had set up a bustling trade inside the temple complex, selling animals. So in the place of prayer, there was haggling. And of course, these animal merchants also gave their cut to the religious leaders, And thus this place of worship had become a noisy stockyard where properly motivated worshipers were preyed upon by unscrupulous, sharp-elbowed merchants who sold the objects they felt necessary for worship in an exploitive way at wildly marked-up prices. And then into the temple comes who? God himself, Jesus the very object of worship that these people are doing these things for and towards. And he looks on the scene. And what emotion does he feel as he comes into the place of worship and sees his worshipers? His pure, naked anger. (laughs) Just righteous indignation. In fact, this is such an unusual sight 
Very often, the, the great balance of Scripture is devoted to describing Jesus as the embodiment of grace, mercy, love. But let's never lose sight of this side of God, this side of who God is. He's a God who fashions a cord of whips and lets them have it, drives it right out of the temple. This is not worship. So, of course, Jesus, looking on this, was angry. He was angry at the injustice of it all, the greed, the idolatrous love of money, especially because it was hiding under a thin veneer of worshipful service. I think he was angry at God's supposed servants using the place and the occasion of worship to serve themselves rather than God and others. This was, according to John's Gospel, Jesus' first public act of his earthly ministry. Uh, Other gospel accounts record this event, but whereas the other synoptic gospels put it at the end of the ministry, John here has it at the beginning. So if you go to some of the other gospel accounts, they have Jesus cleansing the temple in the last week of his life. Here, it's at the very first week of his public ministry. This is his coming out moment. His first recorded sign in the Bible was the miracle at the wedding in Cana, but that was at a private wedding ceremony. This is in the public temple courts. This is the first place Jesus, in John's gospel, will make a public declaration and begin his earthly ministry, and he does it by cleansing the temple. So there's maybe in some minds a a controversy here. Why do some of the gospel writers put it at the end? Why does John put it at the beginning? I personally believe he did this twice. He did it at the beginning and at the end. And that in between he did all the other stuff. But that sandwiched in between that first week of his public ministry and his last week of his public ministry, he cleansed the temple twice. (laughs) He makes this statement two times. And that's worth noting also. So he's angry. This is his first public declaration, his first coming out public uh, occasion of his earthly ministry. And it was provocative. It was confrontational. Even in this earliest public statement, he makes mention of his coming death and resurrection by referencing the rebuilding of the destroyed temple in three days which the disciples would later rightly understand to be a reference to his own bodily resurrection from the grave. Jesus had the end in view from the beginning. And this strikes me as very necessary for us Jesus followers as well. Why does God in his word tell us all how this will end? Why does he tell us about the end of the wicked and the coming reward for the faithful? Why does he tell us about all that the church must endure before the promised day of Jesus' return finally comes? Because I think having the end in view, having an eternal perspective, gives us the courage and the moral vision to live rightly. And Jesus here at the very first of his beginning of his public ministry references the end that he had in view in coming in the first place. Now, in the time ahead, I want to make a couple of general observations about this passage. The first has to do with the place of signs. Uh, you, as I already referenced, we skipped right over the story of Jesus turning the water into wine because not that long ago we studied it. But one of the things we came away from uh, in our understanding from that study 
of the eight miraculous signs is that John is very concerned throughout his gospel with signs, generally. He mentions this a lot. He talks about it a lot. Signs, of course, are these miraculous works of Jesus that serve to vividly illustrate and make plain, visibly obvious truths about who Jesus is and why he came. And you may recall from our study of when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana that the story ended with the statement that the disciples believed. In verse 11 it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the miracle of turning the water into wine was called a sign. And the effect of the sign was to reveal the glory of Jesus, put all of his excellence on full display. That's what that means. And the effect of that was that it brought about belief in the disciples. Now look at how today's story ends. I really think this is a continuation of that big point when he's talking about this story. The story is about Jesus driving money changers out of the temple and being asked by the religious leaders for what? Show us a sign. And telling them he would raise, and then Jesus tells them that he, that here's the sign I'll show you. You destroy the temple and I'll raise it in three days. I think essentially on the heels of him throwing the money changers and the animal merchants out, he's saying you are ruining the temple. You're destroying this place. This place is much more about a physical edifice. It is about spiritual realities. It's about a living God. And you're destroying what this is by how you're using it. And then he goes on to say that, uh, I'll show you a sign. Destroy this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And what he's doing here is he is obviously saying that he himself is the temple. In verse 22 it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Nearly at the conclusion of his gospel, John will share with us the big overarching reason why he wrote his gospel account to begin with. In John 20, 31, he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So by the sign of raising the temple, his bodily resurrection, his hope is that others would see that and believe. His glory would be made manifest, obvious, visible by the fact of his resurrection, and that by seeing that, belief would be born in the hearts of those who could see it. This is why we're studying the Gospel of John. And my prayer is that in the midst of this study that someone will come to belief in Jesus and will find life in his name as we study these passages together. So the, the religious leaders, by the way, in your Bibles when it says the Jews asked him, that's shorthand in the book of John for the religious leaders. It's not speaking about people who have the ethnic identity of being Jewish, but Jews is kind of shorthand for the Jewish religious leaders. And so when he says the Jews ask him this question, what sign do you show us? Uh, it's at first, I think, a little bit puzzling why Jesus doesn't just answer them. Why doesn't he give them a sign? And we talked about this a lot during our study of the miraculous signs in the book of John too. But let me first just point this out. 
I think it's telling that when the religious leaders do confront Jesus, I mean, this is the place that they are charged with administering, right? This is a significant day on the Temple Mount. They're basically the policemen of the mount. And somebody, a wild man, made a whip of cords and drove all the money changers and the animals. He threw the whole thing in the disarray. Everybody's angry and confused, and they see it probably. They hear about it, certainly, and they show up to confront this guy. I used to be a police officer. I've arrived on scenes that were chaotic and wild, and there were wrongdoers. And I asked some questions when I showed up. Like, what do you think you're doing? Uh, What are you doing disturbing this place? Blah, 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 blah. I charge them with wrongdoing. What's the first question they ask? What authority do you have to be doing this? That's interesting to me. That's very telling. They don't ask, why are you being disruptive in the temple? Or why are you interfering with our efforts to furnish worshipers with animals that are fit for sacrifice? They don't ask any of these questions because they know they're culpable. No, what they ask is, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And this is clearly a deflection from the actual issue. Frankly, it's an effort to move the focus away from their glaring guilt in allowing this system of exploitation and greed to flourish under their protection and encouragement. And in fact, even that is too weak a way to frame what's going on. They're not just allowing this stuff to happen. They are active participants in it. They're elbow deep in the whole thing. And Jesus had shined a light on their wickedness. Their position was indefensible. So they don't even try to raise those kinds of questions, to make those kinds of arguments. They don't even go there. Instead, they pivot to question Jesus' authority. And this question, what sign do you show us, is basically saying, we have authority, you don't. Where's your badge? (laughs) What school did you graduate from? Who died and made you policeman of the temple? They're not talking about the wrongness of what he did or the rightness of it or the wrongness of what was happening there. None of that is the conversation they want to have. In fact, they want to avoid that conversation, so they deflect, they pivot, they say, Who do you think you are? (laughs) Show us a sign if you're so great, if you think you're God's gift to the temple. We have authority, you don't. These religious leaders in their robes and their priestly garments and with the backing of all the institutions of the land, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the great, awesome, overawed view of the people generally, They show up with all the trappings of authority and they say to Jesus, where is your authority to do this from? Jesus, for his part, answers them in a way that is cryptic to everyone's ears at the time, but that would prove significant and meaningful after his death and resurrection. Jesus answers them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they respond in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. And John comments in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When Jesus died, remember on the cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain in the temple separating the holy of holies 
ripped in half from top to bottom, signifying that by his death and resurrection, Jesus had replaced the temple and become the new place where everyone could meet and fellowship with God. Remember what he says in Matthew 1, 12, 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, he said about himself. Jesus was talking about this same idea also when he addressed the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Remember, you might remember the story. She had raised, uh, she was also trying to deflect and move the conversation away from her own sin and things like that. So she raises uh, kind of a red herring theological question. She says, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. My people say we should worship on this mountain. Your people say you should worship on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There, there, talk about that rather than my problems. <laughs> this, is what, this is what she does. But Jesus is having none of it. He says, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The hour is coming and is now here. It's not at the temple. It's not on your mountain. I'm here. The temple, it's here. But through the Spirit. I think one of the reasons why Jesus did not reason or argue with the religious leaders in ways that would have been more accessible to them was because of what we read in the next few verses following this exchange. Verse 23 through 25, it says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. So Jesus is talking to men with whom I think he sees spiritually discerns that there is no possibility of helping them to see. Having eyes they don't see. So he answers them in this very cryptic way. Uh, this is why I think as a Jesus follower, we can't say, well, it's right and good for me to fashion a whip of cords <laughs> and go drive people out of the church. We can't see the way Jesus did. He can. I think we can share his zeal for the temple of the Lord, which is now within us. I think we can share his concern for our, our lives and for the purity of our own motives and intentions and what we're doing. I think we can do our best to fashion a whip of cords and drive inwardly those things that we see in us that are impure, that are dishonoring to God. But what Jesus did here, I don't think is something we can emulate necessarily. But what he sees is this. He looks on these men who are saying, we want to see. Show us a sign. But he's looking on men who are intentionally turning a blind eye to everything going on at the temple. These are not men who want to see. They want to see selectively. And so he's not interested in entering into that. They were only going to see what they wanted to see. They were determined to not see what they did not want to see. As Jesus said elsewhere in the Bible, having eyes they did not see. And Jesus, who knows all men, inside and out, knows this about them. He knows what's in these men, and he doesn't play the game. I think that's a fair understanding of what's happening here. Now, I want to I close with this thought. This is the first, 
in the Gospel of John anyway, this is the first of many times recorded in our Bibles when Jesus essentially shows up at church. And he sees things there that are thought to be hidden from view. There's many passages in Scripture where this happens, where Jesus shows up at the synagogue or among God's people or among God's religious leaders or at the Temple Mount, and he sees things there that are thought to be hidden from view or that are just accepted, settled precedent. And the, the question is, that I, 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 occurs to my own mind as I'm thinking about this, is what does Jesus see when he looks at State Road? What does Jesus say when he looks at Josh Tate? Our whole lives and everything written on the pages of our hearts is an open book to Jesus. He knows what we treasure. He knows what we fantasize about. He knows our motives, even our motives in seeming acts of worship. He knows every thought that we've ever harbored and acted upon. He knows about our love for sin, our secret crushes on the world. He knows how we use even seeming acts of worship at times as attempts to draw attention to ourselves. Every week as I'm preparing my message, at some point I pray some version of this prayer. God, forgive me for wanting to do a good job so others will think well of me. <laughs> I do. Every week I ask some version of that prayer finds its way to my lips where I'm struggling to wrestle things down onto page that will be helpful to you. And at some point I'm wrestling with, God, am I truly concerned in your presence that I would be a help to your people at State Road or that I would not look like an absolute failure? <laughs> that I would make the search committee regret their decision. This is the kind of thing I wrestle with. And in that moment, what's, the, what's going on inside of me could go one of two directions. It could look like the outer quarter of the temple where all of a sudden I've changed the occasion and the place of worship into a place where I'm interested primarily in my own profit, that I would gain standing in your eyes. I think we do this in so many different ways. And at some point in just about every week of ministry, I'm praying to God, help me not be that guy. God, I don't want to be like that. But God looks on it. He sees it all. He knows it all. It's all known to him. And if that was all we knew about Jesus, guys, that would be a frightening, scary thought. <laughs> I'm so glad that's not all we know about Jesus. If all we knew was how all-knowing he was, cringe. For example, in Hebrews 4.13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But John is not only eager for us to see how perfectly all-knowing Jesus is when he looks on you or looks on our church. The entire aim of John in recording his gospel account of Jesus is to show us the perfect love, compassion, and grace of this man we're talking about, Jesus. He embodies these things. He not only possesses them in great measure, he is those things. That's who he is. It's actually a wonderful thing to be known in all of our wild imperfections to the one who is so perfectly full of love toward us. And I'll tell you why. 
uh, because you can never disappoint him. His love for you is not based on the fact that certain things are hidden from his view. I can remember when I first fell in love with my wife, Sarah, and for a long time you think, boy, if that came out, she'd leave. (laughs) If she saw that thing or she knew that about me, she would no longer love me. And I think there's a lot of relationships where we keep certain things hidden from view because if they came out, well, things wouldn't be good. Things, they wouldn't like us anymore. But it's good to know this about Jesus. In Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When he died for you, he knew all about how messed up you are. He, knew, he knows it better than you do. And his love for you, his acceptance of you, his grace and compassion towards you is not predicated on the fact that you have successfully hidden some things from him. He sees it all, and he loves you. He died for you in that state. And it's also wonderful to know about the all-knowing nature of God because he also sees the good things that are done in secret. He not only sees the wicked thing, we oftentimes think about that, dwell upon that most, that he sees the shameful thing that was done in secret. But isn't it also true, wonderfully true, that when you do a good thing anonymously, he sees that. When you refuse to forward a juicy piece of gossip, you let that thing die on your ears. He sees that, and he rewards it openly. He sees the rejection of sin in a private moment of temptation. It's just you and God all alone, and you say no to that thing you're tempted to do. He sees it. He sees it all. And my hope, my prayer, is that when Jesus looks at State Road, I am so grateful that when he sees the sinful waywardness, he responds with compassion and grace and love. And when he sees the secret righteousness, he responds with reward. What a great thing it is to be a Christian, is it not? And I see all that in this text for this morning. I am all at once convicted when I see Jesus cleansing the temple. What does he see when he looks on the temple of my body? Oh, what kind of impurity is happening there? And maybe by the Holy Spirit, I could take a whip of cords and start driving that sin out of my life to his glory. And he'll see it. He'll see it. It doesn't have to be done publicly. He sees the secret battle in all of our hearts to cleanse the temple of our own selves for his glory. But even in those many areas in which we fail, I'm so grateful for the cross, so grateful for grace and compassion and forgiveness that his mercies are new every day. We can lean into this God who knows us warts and all and loves us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, give us the capacity to respond to the sins of others with grace and mercy and to respond to the sins within ourselves with repentance. Father, I know that when you look on me and when you look on our church family, you see much that is not what it ought to be. Father, if we don't see that, 
if there are settled, unexamined precedents in the way that we worship. Father, we invite you by the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see. We don't want to stumble in the darkness. We don't want to be unaware of what is closer to your heart. Father, please show it to us and then also give us the courage to pursue that greater thing. And Father, that's not just true for our corporate life. It's also true in each of us individually. I know that when you look on me, you see, you, you, you see things that just are not what they ought to be. Father, I ask your forgiveness for that. I am leaning with all my weight on your grace. But Father, give me grace enough not just to receive forgiveness for my sins, but to stop sinning. God, give me grace enough to be more of a warrior when it comes to putting sin to death in my own heart. Help me to fashion a whip of cords and, and drive from my life those things that are dishonoring to you, those things that I do and think that are not what's closest to your heart. Father, help me in this. Help my friends in this, I pray. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.